0: Hi, and welcome to the Overflow Podcast. I'm Chuck Ammons, teaching pastor at Overflow Church in Brandon, Florida, and we are here to help you receive the Father's love and to release it to everyone you encounter everywhere. Wherever you're listening from today, your God adores you. I pray this message elevates and ignites your faith. On this podcast, you will find biblical messages to activate your faith as well as our You Asked For It series, where we address your questions about trusting God's goodness as Father and living out His fullness as beloved sons and daughters. To find out more about Overflow Church, visit us at myoverflowchurch.com or on Facebook at Overflow Church Brandon. We'd also love to encourage you to check out our book, Life in the Overflow, and its accompanying devotional at amazon.com. seen the people in the name of God have pioneered some of the greatest innovations we've ever seen. The birth of hospitals and orphanages, the university, breakthroughs in science and art and technology, and an active global voice to fight against things like hunger and poverty, and slavery, and preventable disease, and the misuse of power. This is when the church has been at her best. That said, there's a dark reality that any student of history can't ignore. And it's this, that people in the name of the God of the Bible have also been behind some of earth's greatest injustices. Scandals that have involved what I would call the big three, the abuse of sex, money, and power to position self and to promote empire. And we could go on and on with lists of the names. Jim and Tammy Faye Baker, Ted Haggard, Mark Driscoll, Fred Phelps and Westboro Baptist Church, Jimmy Swaggart. Jane Whaley and the Word of Faith Fellowship. The recent troubles with Hillsong Church globally. Bill Hybels and Willow Creek Church. And the list goes on and on and on. But listen, this isn't just a problem of recent history. It's a problem of our history. We go back and we see crusades and holy wars. That's brutality and murdering over control of what we believe is God's land. We look at the Inquisition and witch trials. We see brutality and murder over what we believe are God's beliefs and the right doctrine. Closest to home, we see manifest destiny and race wars. Brutality and murdering in the founding of one nation supposedly under God. And when you look at these, what you see is insanity. It's people believing that there's something that God desires, and so they're destroying someone God designed. I want to say this morning as we continue in Unveiled Love that God and His Word were never meant to be used as a weapon to exert fear and power over others to build empire. But our God always comes in self-emptying love to fill and to heal and to rescue and to restore any who would let him. Now I have to tell you, this is a message of kind of burning some sacred cows this morning. And there's some rooms I've gone in, and this, room, this message hasn't been popular. There's some that have come immediately and said, oh, Pastor Chuck, wait a second. The Bible says the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. And I say, yeah, let's talk about that for a minute. Because when you look at the word being sharper than two, any, any two-edged sword, I would tell you two things. One, what it says is this. The word is sharper than any two-edged sword, and what it's intended to do is to separate your own ribcage and to separate your heart and your motives and what's really going on within you. If you really want to understand what that sword is, it's not a sword. It's a surgeon's scalpel, and it's intended to be looking within, not at what you think is the, the speck in everybody else's eye. The second thing I'd tell you is this, the Word of God. We lift that up. The Word of God, that means my Holy Bible. You know that's not what that's referring to? Jesus is the Word of God. Our Bible is the written word about God that is inspired by God testifying to the living word of God. Somebody hear me this morning. Jesus is the word of God. Jesus is the sword of the spirit. What does that mean? It means right now, wherever you are and however far you feel you're getting it right or getting it wrong, however close to home you think you are or however far you've run, right now he's separating your ribcage and he's coming down and he's separating between the things you do and the things you think and you won't even dare to say. He's drawing into the places of your deepest dreams and your deepest needs and your deepest unrefined. And at any place you see you're lacking, he's coming in that place as the surgeon to offer himself. That said, as we look at the state of Christianity globally right now, I want to say this. Wherever we find ourselves supporting any Kingdom that has any agenda other than receiving and revealing and releasing the transforming love of God. If there is any place we require any other treasure, if we must have Jesus and I've got to have Jesus and comfort, I'm standing up for Jesus and my religious freedom. I want Jesus and a nation that matches my morality. I want Jesus and my presidential candidate. I want Jesus and applause. I want Jesus and reputation. I want Jesus and respect. I want Jesus and my rights. I wanna tell you whatever that and is in our lives, no matter how good you think it is, whether it's holy land or holy beliefs, Or a holy nation. At the place you hold Jesus and. At that place you are in grave danger of confusing kingdom for empire. At that place. You are finding yourself assuming a throne of pride. And violence that will silence the love of God. And as history has shown. This is a very popular path for religious people to take i want to look this morning into the pages of the old testament to a great man of god one of my favorite characters in the bible he was used by god to bring great healing and great hope to many and he's a man who in an instant exploded it all his name is elijah And his story was written so that our pursuit on the earth today of the fire of God, wherever we pursue the fire of God, that we pursue it in a way that would heal the world that God came to save and never to hurt her. Most importantly, what I want to do through the story of Elijah this morning is look behind it because Jesus said the whole story has always been about me And so I want to look behind the story of Jesus and how he offers us something so much better than Jesus and. How he offers us a kingdom that is always better than an empire. So as we step into the pages of Elijah's story in the Old Testament, this is what we see. Israel finds themselves under the failed reform of the time of the kings. And it is not going well. They have a king on the throne. His name is Ahab. And he's described in the Bible as more evil than any of the kings who preceded him. And if you've read the Old Testament, that's pretty bad. Ahab, the king of Israel, married a woman who worshipped foreign gods, whose name has become a hashtag all of its own. Her name Jezebel. And she worshipped and led Ahab to worship Baal and Asherah, two foreign gods. Now, Baal was considered by the people the god of rain and wind and fertility. And I want you to get this. The Old Testament world, as we knew it across the world, they were polytheistic people. That means poly-mini-theistic gods. They believe there are many gods all warring with each other. So there's a god of rain. And then there's a God of fire. There's a God of the crops. And then there's a God of of, of your food and, and your provision. And what you have to do is you have to work in this way that you sacrifice to this God in a way to not offend that God so that you get it all. So they got God after God after God, sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. Baal was their big God. Baal was considered the God of rain and wind and fertility. Asherah. Asherah, the, the female counterpart, was considered the goddess of motherhood and fertility. And depending on tradition, Asherah was either seen as Baal's mother, or lover, or both. Hello, Jerry Springer. <laughs> the people of Elijah's day went to great links to appease their gods. And listen, with Baal and Asherah specifically, it often ended in sacrificing their own children in the fire because they believed that their God was an angry God of wrath who needed blood to appease him of somebody on earth. And now, Ahab, the king of Israel, was leading people into a redefinition of worship and God. So what? What did God do? God came low. He called a prophet named Elijah. And the reason, if you'll read Elijah's story, you'll see, was to turn the people's hearts back to him. And God started to do this in an interesting way. He announced a drought over the land. Why would God do that? Because Baal was the power structure and the authority in place that was the God of all rain. God was showing up to show that their God was powerless to satisfy the needs of their heart. This was a moment that he was calling his kids to remember their history, that this is like the days of Moses and their slavery in Egypt. If you didn't know, the ten plagues, they're all because Pharaoh was considered a god, and every one of the ten plagues were coming against, and... and patiently and graciously asking Pharaoh and the people to relent and to repent and say, just say you don't have the goods, man. Just let it go. Let go of your power. Let go of your empire. Choose love instead. And at great cost to themselves, they wouldn't. And so now he's calling Elijah to reveal to the people that the way of Baal is dry and dead, and he, the true God, is calling people to life. It was mercy he chose to turn our hearts not judgment nonetheless when Ahab hears this he becomes furious and he wants Elijah killed get it again what is he wanting i want to please my god and i'm willing to murder you i have something i believe that god that god desires and so i'm going to kill somebody god delights in but it says that the lord hid Elijah he sent ravens by a brook to feed him and give him water and for the next Three years, Ahab refused to relent or to repent. But our Lord, in all of this time, showed himself as a long road of mercy. After three years, finally, God announced that the time had come, that there was going to be rain upon the land. But listen, in the meantime, back in Israel, Elijah got word that Jezebel had hunted down every prophet of the Lord Yahweh she could find and had them executed. So God calls Elijah to appear on the top of a mountain named Mount Carmel. And on one side stood Elijah, I can imagine the ring announcer right now, ladies and gentlemen, let's get ready to rumble, right? On one side stood Elijah, the prophet of Yahweh, all by himself. On the other side stood 850 prophets of Baal and Asherah. And as Elijah came from a three-year disappearance, his first words are this. He says, it's time for all of us to stop wavering between opinions. We can't serve two gods or two opposing kingdoms any longer. So this is what we'll do. We're both going to call out on our God to answer miraculously. We're going to call on our God to answer by fire. And whoever does that is the true God. And all of them agreed. And so the prophets of Baal, they said, well, we want to go first. We got dibs, right? It's the beginning of the morning. They prepare their sacrifice at the place of their offering. They make it all meticulous. They take their time, and they set it up, and they get it right. And it says that from morning until noon, they cry out to their gods. But there's no answer. Finally, around lunchtime, an exchange takes place that would be hilarious if it weren't so heartbreaking. Elijah shows up with what I can only call the gift of sarcasm. Some of you are like, hallelujah, there's a gift of sarcasm. (laughs) Because Elijah goes to them and he begins to taunt at lunchtime and he says this. He says, call out to your God, shout louder. Perhaps your God has fallen asleep or maybe he's in the toilet. That's what it says in Hebrew. (laughs) So from noon to mid-afternoon, they shouted louder. They began to cut themselves to show the devotion that they had to their God, were willing to sacrifice and bleed for this, but no one answered. Finally, as it's getting late in the afternoon, Elijah approached the altar, says that they'd done such violence to it, he had to repair it. Once it was repaired and set up, Elijah called for water to be poured all over and soak the offering. Once it was done, he called for it to be done again. Finally, what you saw was that water was pouring out even to the trenches. What was he doing? He was saying, listen, what you're about to see is no sleight of hand. And in a quiet and steady voice, Elijah offered a 20-second prayer. With all eyes on him, Elijah said, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, Let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I'm your servant and I've done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me so that these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. And without another word, immediately fire fell and consumed the offering. The story continues and it says this. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Now I want to give you a note. This will save you. A seminary level education. When the Hebrew says that all people fell, it means all people fell. Elijah cries out and says, show all of these people who you are. Call all of their hearts back home. That's the reason fire fell from heaven. God responds, and they all cry out to God. But just then, Elijah seized the prophets of Baal and Asherah by force. The prophets that were presumably on their face confessing Yahweh as God. And he walked them to the Kishon Valley telling you this is not a crime of passion. This is deliberate. This is core to his doctrine. And he slaughtered them all. And it began to rain. But as the story would go on to show, this rain is anything but a victory. I believe it is heaven weeping. Because the God who saves never called Elijah to slaughter. In fact, it was Baal who demanded human sacrifice. God sent fire to answer Elijah's prayer, to turn the people's heart back, and yet Elijah still believed that he was justified in his bloodshed. And listen, to this day, there are many teachers that teach this is Elijah's finest moment. Why did Elijah do what he did? I'm going to tell you in a word, I believe it was pride. When you see Elijah's speech on Mount Carmel and when you see later in his confession, I would encourage you to go read the story. The number of times Elijah talks about himself in his prayers is shocking. And three times Elijah declares that he did what he did because he was, quote, the only one left to represent justice, to represent God's people, to represent God's name. And so Elijah rationalized that somebody had to stop this injustice, that somebody had to stop the insanity, that Jezebel and Ahab didn't need the kingdom anymore because it was threatening everything that he loved. And he convinced himself that it was his job to defend God's kingdom and God's people and God's name. And he did so by calling an audible. He took matters into his own hands. And the saddest part about all of this, guys is the play that he called was right out of Jezebel's playbook. It wasn't even original. This is exactly what she had been doing for three years to the prophets of Yahweh. And this is clear from Jezebel's response to Elijah. She says, and I'm going to paraphrase in my words, but she says this, Oh, Elijah, I can see your God's just like mine. You also conquer by bloodshed. And so now... May my gods do worse to you than yours did to mine. And she vowed to raise up new prophets and to avenge. There was an escalation of war. And in this moment, Elijah saw that he had become just like the evil he tried so hard to end. I want to tell you this. And we need to remember this in American Christianity today. That when you appoint yourself as a martyr... Don't be surprised when you find yourself anointing a form of murder that opposes God's heart. When you appoint yourself as a martyr, I'm the only one left. I realize this looks immoral. I realize what I'm saying about that political candidate looks like cruelty. But you don't understand. I'm representing God. I'm representing his kingdom. We need the right thing. In that kingdom of scarcity where you're a martyr, don't be surprised when you start anointing a form of murder. Now listen, I'm not a political person, but I'm gonna say this, and if I get emails, I don't really give a rip. I love you. (laughs) But in 2016 and 2020, Watching the evangelical church come around Donald Trump as the next Cyrus and the next hero of our people. Watching the things they justified and the things they washed away. Listen, I'm not here to make a hero or a villain. I'm here to say that's a man. And any man who takes the position or any woman who takes the position to be the president of the United States by that office deserves our respect and deserves honor because they're giving their life for our country. That said... Our need to turn them into heroes and villains put a mark and a mar on the church that has alienated so many people because they saw somebody who every time he opened his mouth did not exude the character and the compassion of Christ but talked about himself. And all of these (laughs) theological pillars stood up and said, that's our man, come on church, that's our man. And I want to say this, when you appoint yourself as a martyr, we got to do this because it's the best of our options. Don't be surprised when you find yourself Anointing a form of murder that opposes God's heart, and so Elijah ran into the desert. One of the most ridiculous responses that I taught for years. It's crazy. Sometimes you go back, like, like sometimes you're gonna say somebody and you hear like, I don't agree with their theology. Listen, I hear some things I said ten years ago. I'm like, I don't agree with this theology either. <laughs> okay. We don't need perfection, we need unity. One of the things I taught for a long time was that Elijah ran because he was scared of Jezebel. That's one of the prevailing theories. I want to tell you that's completely ridiculous. Elijah wasn't afraid to die. It was less than 24 hours later that he called out to God, who he'd already seen was way more powerful than Jezebel, to kill him himself. What was happening? If you read Elijah's story, you'll find out he tells you. He says that he wanted to die because he was, quote, no better than his fathers. Hear me. Elijah developed a savior complex. He was going to rescue the people. He was going to restore morality. And after he had done his very best to win the kingdom, nothing changed. A godless king was on the throne. His wife was still there. And the worship of Baal would still continue. So here's the question, not what did Elijah do. But at that moment, what did God do? God came low. It says at this moment while Elijah found himself in the desert that God fed his wayward son miraculously just like he had at the brook at the beginning of the story before he fell. And he didn't just do it once. He did it twice. Do you think that is a coincidence? No. See, God is showing up by the brook and saying this, Elijah, I'm not like you. And I'm not like Baal. I don't retaliate when you blow it. I draw near to meet the need of your heart. My grace and my strength will always be made perfect in your weakness. And so he calls Elijah on a 40-day journey to another mountain, a mount called Horeb. And 40 in the Bible is, is this picture of a pilgrimage, of preparation, and refining. And so he says to Elijah that just like Moses, remember the Old Testament is the law and the prophets, Moses and Elijah are their two big characters. And he says, Elijah, just like Moses, I'm going to pass by on the mountain. You've been asking the question, who am I really? I'm going to show you. So in 1 Kings chapter 19, it says this, The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. And just then, a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, the very thing Elijah called for from God. But the Lord was not in the fire. After the fire came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face over his face and he went out and he stood at the mouth of the cave and then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah thought that his God was in the violent expressions of hurricanes and earthquakes and yes, fire. He believed his God was violent and needing to exact revenge, but his God was not in any of those. His God was a gentle whisper. And as they continued to talk, it was there that God informed Elijah that he was far from the only one left. That God had reserved 7,000 prophets that had not bowed their knee to Baal because God is completely capable of defending God's kingdom. He doesn't need our audible. God alone is sufficient. It was also here on the mountain that God announced that this would be the end of Elijah's ministry that just like Moses, when in a violent and self-sufficient act he struck a rock to provide for the people, God was coming now to take his son home. He told God, he told Elijah to uh, anoint Elisha, the prophet, to succeed. And I just wanna say as a side note, that's a cruel joke of God, to have Elijah followed up by Elisha. Like, that just messes with that. You know how many test points that counted, did it cost against me in college? Goodness gracious, Lord. And at the end of all of it, in all the ways God could choose to lead his son home to glory, he chose a chariot made of fire. What is that about? He's saying, Elijah, I want you to know something. The fire of God is not to torch you. It's to transport you to my heart. The fire of God has not come to torch you and to judge you. The fire of God comes to lead you home In this moment, he took Elijah's worst moment and he transformed it with unspeakable grace. See, Baal called for the people to be sacrificed to appease his own God's violence, but we would soon see that our God would come, and much like the drought, it was a time of spiritual drought for three years as Jesus walked, just like three years of drought when Elijah walked, but at the end of all of it, our God didn't call down an exact vengeance and murder people. No, our God took all, all violence and sacrifice upon himself to end our anger and our violence. I'm not like you, Elijah. I'm not like Baal. If we fast forward this story hundreds of years later, we see Jesus... And his disciples. And they're preaching in a region of the Samaritans. Now this is significant because in their day, the religious who's who's would tell you that you shouldn't spend any time with the Samaritans. They were in fact called half-breeds. So we don't see them as worthy of anything, but Jesus and the disciples are there. So already the disciples are thinking, man, we're super compassionate because we're going to these people who are nobodies. But when they get to Samaria and came to preach, they were rejected hard. They weren't even allowed to step foot in the town, and it says that James and John, two of Jesus' three central disciples, the sons of thunder, were fuming. And in that moment, they thought of their hero, Elijah. And they asked Jesus a question, and his answer will be very telling for you and I. Listen to this. They said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. He said, you don't even know what kind of spirit is influencing you when you ask this. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy people's souls, but to save them. See, here Jesus, the fullness of who the Father has always been, he said, hear me. You're going to meet people in your journey who despise you and judge you, who reject you, who live in ways that you count unclean, who are cruel to you. People who you look at and you're like, oh, they anger me because they just don't get it. Let me go a step further. You're going to meet people who support an agenda that you believe is dangerous and that if somebody doesn't stop them, we're going to lose our country. And there are voices of religious martyrs in that moment to say, we're the only ones left not on our watch, not on our clock, to call for fire from heaven. We're going to want to vilify them, to silence them. And Jesus says, this is not my spirit. I don't come to destroy souls. I don't send fire to destroy. I come to save. I don't send it to torch you. I send fire to transport people to my heart and to come home. Overflow Church, I want to say this prophetically this morning and strongly over our community. A house against itself cannot stand. God does not use violence to drive out violence. A house against itself cannot stand, and God does not use violence to drive out violence. He always comes in self-emptying. So if we're to take it from Elijah's day and James and John's day to our day, I believe there are four quick activations. And then, as I told you, we're going to respond in a beautiful moment of prayer and intercession and worship. Our four activations to move us are this. Number one, the pride of living for me will always result in violence toward you eventually. Let me say that one more time. The pride of living for me will always result in violence toward you Eventually, that has been our story since Cain and Abel. Whenever I choose to live for me, I cannot love you because love does what is best for for another. That's why the call to faith is the call to die to ourselves and become alive to Christ, where Jesus alone becomes our treasure, where we trust Jesus alone to meet every need and every hunger of our heart. So I've got to ask the question this morning: Is there anywhere? that you're trusting in Jesus and. By the way, you'll know it by what makes you angry and by who makes you angry. It's because you're expecting them to deliver something they're not able to deliver. The second I want to say is this. There are two kinds of violence, active and passive. As I've shared this message before, many people, they don't have a problem if I'm going to talk about Elijah and say Elijah did something violent. They're like, okay, well, I don't really like that. He's my hero. You messed with that. I don't like that say, James and John did something violent. They're like, well, they're the sons of thunder. Yeah, they did. They, they could be that way. But the minute that I come and say, the American church sometimes is finding ourselves often in the midst of what can only be described as violence. That's where people start to get uneasy. And I've had people come to me and say, no, 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 Pastor Chuck, you don't, you don't get it. We're not part of the problem. We're the solution. And I want to tell you this morning, I think that when we say that, we have too narrowly defined violence and not defined it biblically. There are two kinds of violence. Active violence and passive violence. I'll tell you what I mean. Active violence is this. Active violence is when we take emotional, physical, or spiritual action to alienate, judge, or hurt another made in the image of God. These are sins of commission. And there's way too many to list in the Bible. But in the New Testament, there's these lists that show up again and again and again. And these are the ones that show up on those lists as forms of active violence. Sexual impurity. Greed. Jealousy, gossip and slander, unhealthy craving for controversy, and evil suspicions. I want to redefine some lines for just a minute. We talk about sexual impurity. I want to say this without apology. Pornography is an act of violence. Pornography is an act of violence committed against a person made in delight in the image of God. You are entering into an intimate space you were not meant to have any part of and it is an action, you say, it's only, it's, it's only me, it's not causing any harm. I want to tell you this, you're becoming a subscriber to someone selling themselves. Yes. It's causing great harm. Yes. I've heard many people in our day right now when we're talking about what needs to change on the earth, many, Christian, non-Christian, all faiths say, we need to end human trafficking. I'm so grateful that we have a missional community that is on the front lines of ending human trafficking. Isn't that amazing? Yes. It's awesome. Let me give a first step for all of us because that can feel so big. We need to end human trafficking. How do we do that? It's going on everywhere. I would say this if you want to end human trafficking, stop making pornography a profitable enterprise. Stop saying it'll sell. Stop saying we want it because we want to go all the time and get on these things and it's just demonic. No, it's just money is what people are seeking. Stop making it profitable and call it what it is. Pornography is violence assaulting the image of God in a real person he adores. We look at greed and jealousy on that list and I'll just say this. When there's stuff that you just have to have, don't be surprised when you find yourself stepping over others to get it. You look at gossip and suspicion, and what I would say is we have allowed ourselves to position too many people as the enemy when our Bible says there's no enemy of flesh and blood. And if you just look at that list, look at the one thing they share in common. The list could go on and on and on, but all of those are about the abuse of sex or money or power. That's what is at the heart of all, uh, all violence. So I want to tell you the pride of living for those things will always result in violence eventually. That said, there's a second kind of violence, and this is the one I really want to hone in on for a second. It's far more pervasive because we don't call it such. It's passive violence. Passive violence is when I choose emotional, physical, or spiritual inaction that alienates, hurts, or judges someone made in the image of God when it is in my capacity to love my neighbor as myself. These are sins of omission. If I wanted to say it a different way, it's this. Passive violence is turning away when there is something in your capacity to pray or to say. Passive violence is turning away when there is something in your capacity to pray or to say. I think about our isms on earth racism, sexism, ageism, classism, and I wanna say this, the reason most of these are able to stand most is not because of active violence. Historically, active violence has been by a loud minority. I wanna say the reason they stand upon planet Earth is because of passive violence, a general sense of apathy of the majority that turns the blind eye and puts something that is justice on the back burner. I'm reminded of the words of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. where he says this, in the end, We will not remember the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. When we see injustice and wrong and choose to say nothing because it would hurt our reputation or our standing, when we find ourselves saying something like this, well, I want to stand in the midst of this, but if I say anything, they're going to think I stand with this movement or that movement, and that would be dangerous. Or, I want to stand up, but it's such a huge issue, it probably won't change anything. Whenever we find ourselves choosing silence, we need to understand that what we're doing is retaining our place in line and surrounding ourselves with people who agree with ourselves so we can convince ourselves that we're not trading compassion for cowardice. When we choose silence, it's I'm going to stay and I'm going to keep my place in line. By the way, the tolerance movement, I have a big problem with the tolerance movement because to tolerate someone is not to love them, it falls too far short. When you look at what drives the tolerance movement where it says, don't take a stand, just let everybody do whatever they want to do. The problem I have with the tolerance movement is it's not compassion that motivates it, it's self-preservation. It's I want to come in such a way that I want to retain my spot in line. So who I'm actually preserving right now is, I don't want to say anything to offend Josh because I want Josh to respect me. I don't want to say anything to offend Matt because I want Matt to respect me. I don't want to say anything to offend Charlotte because I want Charlotte to respect me. Who am I protecting? truth is none of us believe in tolerance. If there's somebody that you love and you believe that what they're doing is the equivalent of running themselves to traffic, I promise you right now what you're going to do, you're not going to go, oh, but it probably hurt their feelings if I stopped them from running into traffic. That would probably be bad. No, you're going to tackle them to the ground and later say, I'm sorry if that hurt, but I love you too much to say silent. Silent complicity is a form of passive violence. And I want to say this, neglect is a passive form of violence that's probably the biggest one we need to hear We stand right now as the richest 1% of the world in a culture that is addicted to the dopamine hit of our comforts and our happiness and our praise. We don't like being corrected. We don't like being called out. And we don't like sadness. That's why we write after-school specials that wrap up everything neatly by the end of the hour. It's hard to look at brokenness. It's harder to choose to let empathy break our heart But I want to say this morning that I believe what's desperately needed in the church is that we need to recapture the lament that would drive us to our knees. To cry out to God. To weep with those who weep. To listen eagerly and patiently if God has given us a capacity of any way to help. Listen, I'm not putting a burden on our shoulders. Often you won't have the capacity where you can help. But passive violence is when we look away when there's something God has given you the capacity to do or to say. And I want want you to hear me. That kind of love is hard. But that kind of intercession is the price of love. That kind of intercession to say, I'm going to run to the throne for you, and I'm going to keep running to the throne for you, and until I see God move, I'm going to sit with you. The third one I want to say is this, and don't worry, I'm not going to leave us in this uncomfortable moment forever. (laughs) Somebody like, it just got real in here. Number three. Prideful individuals build violent empires, but often don't recognize it because they anoint it in religious language. Holy wars manifest destiny. I want to be very clear on this. I love our country. I am so grateful to be an American. That said, I want to say the hope of the world is not America and her politics. It's Jesus and his church. We don't need to make America a Christian empire because our citizenship is not here. We are not ambassadors of America. We're ambassadors of the human race. We're a little bit of yeast that are supposed to be working through the global dough, so we need less time defending our opinions and debating the news and more time on our knees and more time loving our neighbors and more time meeting needs, which leads me to the final point. The only solution to empire is to love God with all of our hearts and then respond in love to our global neighbor as if they were us. If you ever wanna know what's driving our hearts right now as a people, as a church, and where we're going, I'm gonna give you a maxim you can take with you. You wanna know what's driving my heart, it's this. Love can do no wrong to its neighbor. Empire can endure no wrong to itself. Love can do no wrong to its neighbor empire can endure no wrong to itself. Pride will always be self-seeking and it will always end in violence. It will be us or them. Love will always be self-emptying and it will always end in worship because it will be us for them. Because we see there is no us and them. There's only us. I believe our answer this morning to all of this is not to wallow around and to feel bad. No, I think Jesus has given us something far better than that. I think he said we don't have to respond in in either hopelessness or anger. What we respond in is intercession. And so in these moments, I believe there's two questions for every heart in this room. The first one is this. Is there any place that you're holding on to active or passive violence? Is there any place that you find your attitudes and your heart and your frustrations? I need Jesus... And, and the people that don't meet the and, I'm getting offended by them and I'm getting angry at them and I'm pushing them outside of the walls. That's the first question. Is there any place there's active and passive violence? And in just a minute, as we come into a time of worship, we're gonna give you the opportunity to just let it go. The second is this though. God is giving us the invitation this morning to step boldly into self-emptying love. And so I've asked Pastor Cindy to come And join me here on the platform because she is going to help us start. We recently received news from a friend of ours at LL in the Ukraine. And when you hear the story of what she shares, when Pastor Cindy started sharing it with me, I thought I was hearing something from Corey Timboom in the hiding place. I thought I was hearing something from the days of scripture. But this is happening right now in our world in a place that we have been called to ask God what are we to pray and what are we to say. I'm going to ask her to lead us in a time of intercession and prayer. And then after that, we're going to respond together and worship and laying it down. Pastor Cindy, would you share with us?
1: Thank you, Pastor Chuck. I want you to close your eyes for a moment. And I want you to picture in your mind the city of Tampa. Just see the skyline. I'm sure many of you have heard the stories of the tragedy unfolding in Ukraine. Ukrainians dying, Russians dying. But there's a city that's been hotly contested for, that many men and women have given their lives for. At the latest count, at least 20,000 civilians have died in the city of Mariupol. Now Mariupol is a city very similar in size to Tampa, slightly larger in population. It's 6,000 miles from here. But I say to you today, there is no distance in the spirit that our prayers fill up the golden bowls in heaven that Nikki so wondrously expressed to us last week. So I want you to hear the testimony of a woman named Paulina who came from Mariupol. She was a member of the LL team there. And she says this, before the war started, God prompted us to stockpile food, water, candles, and matches. On February 24th, the war started, and we needed to find a bomb shelter. I want you to think about the city of Tampa now, remember? We found a basement in a school building which was used to store coal. It was damp and cold and dark, but we quickly made it livable. There were 12 of us Christians, and then 20 other people joined us, and we ministered to them continuously. We conducted services, we sang psalms, we prayed for them, we comforted them, and we gave them food. God constantly provided for our needs we had no bread so he made pancakes from cooked pasta she comments that it was delicious every day every day we saw the glory of god and his miracles the gifts of the holy spirit worked through us healing souls wounds and pain every day we trusted the lord in everything and when he told us to leave the school basement and go to the basement of our church building we obeyed without delay. All the people who stayed with us in the school also followed us to the church. Later we found out that the entrance to the school basement was hit by a bomb. I cannot describe how much destruction we saw. There was so much fear, despair, grief, and death. We saw dead bodies laying on the roads, in the yards, and no one buried them. When they started to bomb our district, we realized that we had to leave. It took us two days to evacuate all 32 people with just one car under shelling and bombing. We spent 28 days under siege, and it felt like an eternity to us. No food, no water, no electricity, anarchy, looting, chaos, cold, no gas, no Internet, no telephone connection. And so many dead. But we, our families and our church members survived. The Lord was with us. I know our LL family prayed for us and our church. We survived thanks to your prayers. Loving hearts embraced and surrounded us with care and welcomed us to the LL Center in Budapest, Hungary. It is such a beautiful and peaceful place so that we could get healed in spirit, soul, and body. We will always remember the little house by the lake, which became our home for a while. Here in this little house, we were able to cry, pour out our hearts, and let go of our houses, our property, our cats, our flowers in pots, and everything that we love so much, especially our beloved city of Mariupol. The Holy Spirit comforted us so much and gave us the strength to move on. We are heading to Germany where the Lord is preparing a new destiny for us. But there is still hope that one day we will return with love and gratitude. Sister Paulina, can you imagine living 28 days under siege? These are flesh and blood people just like you and I who love Jesus. There is a nation of people under assault, and they're not the only ones. It happens across the globe. But we know about this one, don't we, now? You've heard the testimony. My heart cries out, and I pray that the Holy Spirit will have your heart cry out. I want to invite you right now to join me in prayer if you want to come and kneel come and kneel if you want to lay on your face lay on your face if you want to stand if you want to wave flags whatever god tells you to do in this moment please say yes our prayers make a difference we physically cannot go to the ukraine in this moment can we we can't give enough money we can't do enough things to change what has happened to these people and all the lives and things they have lost. But we can stand before our king and offer our praise to him and, and intercede from a heart of compassion for these who are suffering. Will you join me, please? Stand, kneel, whatever you like to do. Let's do it. Come on, people. Let's start and say the prayer we all know. Our Father, who art in heaven, join me. Hallowed be be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. As it is in heaven, give us, give them this day daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us lead us not into temptation Lord you do not lead us into evil but instead deliver us from the one who leads us into evil for yours is the kingdom the power and the glory forever father Now, I want you to say what words come to your mind as I'm praying. Don't worry about speaking over me. Just say it. What he gives you to say, say it out loud. He wants to hear our hearts cry for our brothers and sisters. So, Father, in the mighty name of Jesus, we release peace. We release fullness. We release the filling of your spirit. We release miracles. We release faith. We release hope. Lord, we call for an end to the violence, Lord. We call for an end to the suffering. We call for an end to the dying, Lord. Father, reach down from heaven and change the hearts of the leaders, oh God. Father, hear the cries of your people. Hear our cries, Father. Hear our heartbreak that a city of like our own, Father, has been destroyed and many lives lost. People are without home and food and electricity and they've had to flee the only thing they know because of the of violence, Lord God. We renounce and reject every violent act now in the mighty name of Jesus. Father, and we come before you and and release hope. For you, Jesus Christ, are the only hope for Ukraine. It is not the weapons of the Western world. It is not bullets and bombs, but Lord God, it is you. You are the Lord God, and only you can save. So, Father, we praise your name. We offer our thanksgiving to you. We offer our hallelujah to you. We say hallelujah, Lord God, that you are able to save and that your arm is not too short. So, Father, today we call for peace and healing and peace. Blessing and restoration for your people, Ukraine. We also pray, Father, for those in Russia suffering because of the behavior of one. So, Father, we call for blessing and restoration and 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 comfort in their grief for the lost and the dying, Lord. And we thank you, Father. That we are in solidarity together for peace with your church across the world, across the globe, Lord. We thank you in Jesus' name. Will you say amen with me? Amen. Amen.